Everybody and welcome to another episode of Cinefleck. I am your host, Ethan Colburn. Uh, welcome back. Um, Clara will be on this episode. However, they are not doing the intro with me. Um, I was lucky enough to get Brian Bittner to come back. Brian Bittner is uh, on the Lessons from the Screenplay team, which also does the Beyond the Screenplay podcast, which you can find everywhere podcasts are available. Um, and Lessons Lessons from the Screenplay is a YouTube channel. Um I had so much fun with him last night. If you want more of him, check out my high and low episode. It's one of my earlier episodes I did. Um, he did a whiskey infusion there. For this one, he he also invented the drink. Uh, very, very impressive bartender. He uh, invented a custom drink called the Blood Simple, which you can find on my Instagram and Twitter, which I'll have links for in the description. Uh, please check those out. Um, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you get the chance, and as always, thank you to my patrons, Stephen, Sydney, Isaac, Zach, Griffin, and Dania. If you want to become part of our Patreon, uh, go to patreon.com slash cinefleck. We're discussing Anatomy of a Murder this week, which should be very, very fun. Um, I will post on social media as soon as I know what next week's episode is. Without further ado, let me throw you into this week's episode. I hope you enjoy All right, Brian, welcome to the podcast. Welcome back to the pod, man. Thank you. It's so good to have you back. It's, uh, yeah, it's fun to be here again. Any any excuse to have a drink and watch a movie, you know, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> for sure, for sure. No, we were, we were, we were talking about, we were talking about a few options. Um, like two of my favorite movies actually we were between this and North by Northwest and mm-hmm. uh, Blood Simple went out partially because of, the the many drink options that that we could that we could come up with this but but you came up with a great one here thank you yeah i was trying to think first of all i was like we need a drink that that could be served in this horrible bar right yeah. like it, <laughs> yeah yeah right <laughs> it can't be it can't be like in a nice coupe glass with like no. a swirly you know lemon on it um so we do have campari so that's maybe i just imagine like there's one bottle of campari that like they had to fish from behind <laughs> like you know the old crow or something like that they're like we have this should we just add this um but uh i had had in the past blood orange bitters which is actually it's called bitters but it's almost more of like a cocktail mix so i was thinking of that i was like oh blood orange bitters and you were like simple syrup and i was like how did i not think of that so i was like (laughs) all right blood simple cool um so i figured bourbon should be the base uh, or like a like a rye maybe you could do too just because again what's going to be served in this like dive bar right? right um but then we had to make it a little bloodier so we added the campari uh for some you know for some some flavor um and for some color and then balance it out with a little a little lemon juice um, cause it just felt like I needed something. I don't really have a good thematic reason for the lemon juice. It's just <laughs> it's a there. little citrus in there. It's yeah. all good. Um, and then, uh, and then I had uh, tobacco bitters and I was like, you know, what's going to round out the dive bar cocktail, but yeah, it definitely <laughs> makes it feel like, yeah. it feel a little, like grungy and stuff for yeah, sure. Yeah. No, it's, it's, 
it's like super good and definitely gets me in the in the mood for the movie. Have we have have you figured out a name for this or? I'm I think it's just called the Blood Simple, right? Because I mean, we could we could go Blood Orange Simple. That's the other that's the other one that came to mind. But uh, just keep it with Blood Simple is 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 uh, great too. Or or maybe during the course of the episode, we can come up with something that just feels you know like a good quote from the movie or something. Yeah 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 yeah. We'll keep we'll keep working through it for sure. Um. Yeah, no, it's quite good. Claire, I'm assuming you didn't make the joke. <laughs> no. You're always it's, slacking off. No, today I'm drinking um, Bloom Grapefruit Rosé Wine Spritzer. It's low calorie. Oh, that's always good. Um, they put pretty pink flowers on the can so you know it's not for men. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. I feel I feel like you're here to talk about intolerable cruelty and we're here to talk about <laughs> You're going to be in a whole different headspace with this with totally this, like, fruity drink. Yeah. I'm bringing totally different vibes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm here for it. So, so Brian, you were saying that you went back, you were going back through like the Coen brothers recently. Mm-hmm. Have, have you been, have you been going like in order or like, are you? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, we, we just uh, on my podcast, Beyond the Screenplay, we just did um, a Big Lebowski episode. Yeah. And I had been talking for a while to my girlfriend about like, let's just go back and watch everything in order because she hasn't seen a bunch. I haven't seen a lot for years. Mm-hmm. That way back in 2000, probably one or so um, when you guys were learning cursive. Um, <laughs> I, yep. Yep. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I, you know, it was right when like, um, Lebowski and O Brother Arthur were coming out and it was like, oh, who are these Coen Brothers guys that I feel mm-hmm. like I should probably know about? Totally. So then I did my due diligence over the next year or two and I watched uh, Blood Simple, Barton Fink, Miller's Crossing, Hudsucker. Um, and some of those I haven't seen since then. Uh, and Blood yeah. Simple was one where I remember thinking it was really good and for whatever reason just never went back and revisited it. Um, so yeah, so we started a couple months ago, or no, probably about a month ago, from the beginning, watching them in order. We're up to a man who wasn't there. We just finished uh, this past week, um, and I was blown away by Blood Simple. I was like, I just didn't remember just how good it was, and I feel like there's a lot of connections. Blood Simple is a totally different movie after you've seen No Country for Old Men, because mm-hmm. it just has so many similarities and like the tone and the way that they communicate information to the audience and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I feel like mm-hmm. maybe, you know, we can get into that more later, but um, that made me sort of reappreciate Blood Simple and all the things that it was doing. Uh, and I just had such a good time with it where I'm like, wow, this went from being a movie that I haven't seen in a long time to like maybe a top five Coen Brothers movie for me. Wow. Uh, totally. Yeah. So I, I've just been, you know, really, uh, really, interested in going through their movies in order because they're so bizarre you go from blood simple to raising arizona you know (laughs) no (laughs) seriously yeah you have this like madcap comedy era where it's like lady killers intolerable cruelty burn after reading but what's in the middle of that no catch for old men and then they go to true grit you're like what who are you what is happening (laughs) (laughs) which always keeps you on your toes right because you never know what they're going to do next no totally totally i mean like my biggest takeaway when i like i've I, I, uh, I think I'm two away from finishing. Yeah. So I've, I haven't seen man who wasn't there and lady killers. So I'm like, I'm mm. two away from finishing their filmography. Mm. And it's amazing that like filmmakers that switch genres so often have such a consistent feel yeah, and tone throughout their movies. Like there's, there's a, I mean, 
I mean, I mean, on surface level, like Hail Caesar and Inside Lewin Davis are like bizarre back-to-back movies, right? <laughs> right. But then they, but then they have they they have their weird side characters that they introduce throughout. They have their sort of the the cadence in which the char- the characters speak and everything that that just oddly like ties all their movies together in a way in a way that you wouldn't expect, I guess. But um, yeah, no, I mean, my biggest takeaway here was just like they really just came out like fully formed. Yeah, yeah. I was just like, I was just like this feels like a movie directed by like two people in their forties and they must've been like in their twenties at this Mm -hmm. point. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating because it's sort of, it's amazing how it feels both like a kind of bad B movie from the (laughs) eighties and like this just brilliant masterpiece, you know, because Carter Burwell, who then went on to score most of their movies, his score is a little, you know, a little schmaltzy eighties at some point. And then sometimes it's awesome. Like the P that piano motif that goes throughout the movie mm. and stuff. Um, and then you just have the whole, the whole plot feels a little, and they did that on purpose. They're like, we kind of wanted to make this like dime store novel, like paperback kind of, uh, feeling thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are definitely moments where you're like, Oh, I'm watching this like eighties movie that I would have just watched on, watched on TV, some random night, at, you know, 11 PM or something. And then you get, the the tracking shots and then you get the like bug zapper timing right when you know uh right when he's uh when marty is doing his threats and stuff the you know just have so many things where you're like oh no this is expert filmmaking from some people who clearly like you said just came out of the gate um but it's sort of it's so interesting how it feels like both those things at once in a way that totally works for this movie totally totally Clara, was this your first experience with the movie or had you, you'd you seen it, it before? Was. Oh, no. it was. Okay. Okay. This okay. was my first watch, which was really, really fun. And like, I've seen probably like exactly half of the Coen brothers films now. So like, this was a cool one to see, I think, because like, I've seen all their big stuff um, or like, well, big in like quotes, I guess we could put it of like the stuff from the 2000s that everyone talks about, like no country for old men or the big Lebowski and stuff like that. Um, so it's really fun going back to like their origins and seeing just like how distinctive they are from the get-go because so many filmmakers like it takes a little while for their style to really like come full force and like really kind of hit you in the face mm-hmm. whereas like yeah. here it's like I don't like the word aggressive because it sounds aggressive but it's almost <laughs> like aggressive how blatant like their style is like immediately like there's no like holding back or like cautionaryness to it like it's just immediately like nope this is what we're about we're doing it this way like sit down and deal with it yeah absolutely yeah there, there's a confidence uh to their to their mm-hmm. film there's always a confidence to their filmmaking and i think that that's something that they'll they're happy to talk about where they just say like we know what we want mm-hmm. and we, we don't, we're not saying what we want is good but we know what we want and it's like cool right. that's that's a pretty good thing to have because you have so many other people who Obviously, it's good to compromise and, and everything like that. It's good to listen to other people. But you do have a lot of people who just sort of shrug and say, OK, if that's what you want, we'll do it that way. And then you mm-hmm. just get a bunch of movies that feel the same, you know. And I think yeah. that if there's one thing the Coen brothers are not guilty of is making movies that all feel the same or feel like yeah. every other movie you've seen, you know. Absolutely. And I think like speaking again on how like they kind of jump between genres, like I think that speaks to how talented they are as well, because I think sometimes directors get pigeonholed into genres so Mm -hmm. quickly, especially early in their career, but they just 
don't let that happen. <laughs> like they, right. they really just don't abide by that rule at all. And I think that's so refreshing. And I, I, I think their filmmaking speaks to that, but I also think more than anything, their writing speaks to that in a way mm-hmm. that's so exciting. Like there's not a single film of theirs where I'm watching and I'm like, Oh, I just, I wish the writing was better. Like it's right. all just so great writing. Like it doesn't matter what they're writing about. They know exactly what they're going for with it. And that's so effective. And I think that's why the filmmaking aspect of it translates so well. Uh, yeah, no, I, I was just going to say like, um, like diving deeper into their filmography, like these last couple of years, I've gotten to see the ones that are considered their like lesser Coen Brothers movies, mm. like Intolerable Cruelty and Hudsucker Proxy and stuff. And that's where I really think I started to appreciate them. Like, I, I think mm. I, I, I used to say Robert Altman is my favorite director. And now I, I think it's, I think it's the Coen brother or, or Joel Coen or, but like the Coen brothers together as just mm. a unit, um, just because like, like kind of what you're saying about about the confidence that they bring through things. I think I, I personally, like I, I loved intolerable cruelty because I realized that they're, that, that what they're doing, I think, I, I think some of the criticism around that movie is that the Coen brothers are trying to sell out and make a rom-com when in reality, they're just trying to parody the genre and kind of like make fun of their own audience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think the same is true with Hudsucker Proxy where they're kind of parodying how kind of Frank Capra, like pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it just, unlike other directors that when they sort of get more power, they do have, self-indulgent tendencies. I mean, I think you could put like Wes Anderson in in, in, in in that category of occasionally getting too self-indulgent, even like Hayao Miyazaki has that tendency where it's like too many characters, too many machines, you know, but the Coen brothers almost seem like they, the, while they're confident, they have the right amount of restraint to just mm. put exactly. Yeah, I just, I just, I, I really appreciate sort of the the tonal consistency, I guess. Yeah, and I think that's what's interesting is um, Wes Anderson, every Wes Anderson movie feels like a Wes Anderson movie, mm-hmm. like uh, externally, right? It's mm-hmm. like it's like everything, it's sort of trying very hard to show you that it's being a Wes Anderson movie. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think with Coen Brothers, you find that the consistency throughout their movies is more subtle. Mm-hmm. It is sort of baked in, you know, like you were saying, Clara, the writing, it's like the writing is so different from movie to movie because their man who wasn't there is noir. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Lebowski is like whatever the hell that sort of Shakespearean. Kind <laughs> <laughs> of noir yeah. too, also, right. yeah. Um, and, and, then, uh, and then you have something like Oh Brother Art Thou where it's all, you know, you boys trained in the metallurgic arts or whatever, like where mm-hmm. it's, they're just having so much fun with the the dialogue and, and with this kind of thing. And then you have these sort of um, these things that these consistent, like little things that you'll find throughout their movies. Like, so I started making a list when, as I was rewatching everything and I was like, you always have a big desk, be- a big boss behind a desk, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. right. yeah. oh my God. <laughs> You always have incompetent criminals who like their life would have been way yes. better if they just kept living it and didn't try to like do something, you know? Um, and then you have this thing that I call uh, implied magic, mm. which you don't get in all of their movies, but where it's sort of some of their movies like Hot Sucker Proxy will just do a full on like time just stopped. 
you know, or something like that. Yeah. It's like, you're just yeah. saying like this exists, but you also have this thing. You don't get it in really in blood simple, really, but you have this thing where it's like something is presented as being larger than life. Uh, like, our brother, we're out there. I think is the best example of a movie where totally. nothing that happens yeah. in that movie is like technically impossible, but everything that happens in that movie is so improbable, right? It's so like larger than life <laughs> and unlikely and that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and then of course you have like some sort of accidental death, like somebody accidentally kills himself <laughs> or somebody else or does something stupid like that. But, but again, it's like, these are the things in the guts of the movies, whereas mm -hmm. the surface, unlike Wes Anderson, the surface is so different in every movie. Uh, it, every once in a while, you can sort of mm -hmm. look, point at two movies and go, oh, this movie kind of feels like that movie. But mm -hmm. if you show someone two minutes of, uh, oh, brother, where art thou? And then show them two minutes of the man who wasn't there, and then show them two minutes of No Country for Old Men. They're not going to say that's all the same filmmaker because the the surface of the movie is so different. That buys you the opportunity to have all these little running motifs, almost almost yeah. like a running gag going throughout your movies. You know, totally. That's a great way to put it. <laughs> Clary, do you have any? Did you have any follow up thoughts? Um, no, I think that words it perfectly. But I guess I just have the question of. Brian, you said that you kind of like really fell into watching all their stuff in like the early 2000s. And so I was mm -hmm. just wondering, is that more just because they weren't on your radar before then? Or is that where they really like blew up in like film discourse, I guess? Because obviously we were babies then. So like, right. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of both. I think I think with mm -hmm. my generation, it was Fargo, Lebowski, O Brother, mm -hmm. this sort of the, they're sort of trilogy of perfection almost right where it yeah. was like um they were just hitting everything out of the park um granted they had made six movies before then and i think right. people older than me maybe were like mm -hmm. watching miller's crossing in the theaters in 1990 i was not when i was eight years old you know right. um, yeah. but but it definitely felt like that that sort of trilogy fargo fargo especially because it got so much oscar attention mm -hmm. and then big lebowski became like this overnight kind of cult hit yeah um so big lebowski comes out in 98 and i'm in college in 2000 right so it's okay. like that's the movie everyone big lebowski and yep. swingers you know <laughs> the movies that you come off from your, the party and just put it on so now you've seen that movie <laughs> 20 times in a semester or something yeah um <laughs> So I think it was a little bit of both where it was just, it was, it was a huge time for them, mm -hmm. but also in, in, for my specific age, I was just getting into like my late teens, early twenties when I was going down this like filmic, I gotta, I have to watch Bergman and I have to watch, you know, Hitchcock and I have to watch the Coens and I have to like catch up on all these movies that I keep hearing about, but I haven't actually sat down and watched. So, so many of the movies, Butch and Sundance, like all these movies, I, there's like maybe a two year period where I saw all of these movies for the first time because I was just like, I got to watch all these movies. And it was, it was, it was a delight too, obviously, but mm -hmm. then yeah. some of those I didn't, I haven't watched again until maybe recently or something because I just sort of was going through them so quickly. So how did you, how did you remember this differently? Like, do you think like your memory of it was pretty, was pretty accurate or what, what was like, what was like your biggest takeaway on the, on the rewatch other than it just being extremely impressive? Uh, my memory of this movie was like the whole movie was her hiding from him, like under a table or something like that. <laughs> and it blew my mind rewatching it, that that is 10 minutes of the, of the, yeah. the end of this movie. <laughs> 
um yeah I, I really didn't remember much i remembered mm at walsh because how do you forget him um and i remembered Frances mcdormand of course um who i know you in new nomad land you said she was a, a newcomer uh ethan but she's actually she's been new. she's been in a few things before yeah but yeah and then of course i just remembered this whole the whole ending because the ending is so memorable you know um but other than that i really didn't remember what much so it was mm -hmm. really fun to rewatch it not remember i don't remember who died i don't remember like mm -hmm. what happened or anything um but yeah it was just it is that that striking thing that happens to you when you see a movie 20 years ago and you're like i don't remember anything but i remember that one scene or that one image or that yeah. one line or whatever it is you know and this movie definitely was like i remember liking it a lot and I remember some things, but I don't remember anything else, you know, <laughs> uh, and now I've, I've rewatched it twice now in the past um, couple of weeks because I wanted to watch it again for uh, before we did this. And it's just like, again, I'm, I'm just blown away by it. And I just really think it's fantastic. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, yeah, I think I I think for me, like. I'm just I'm just so impressed by the fact that like. I think this time more than my first watch because my first watch, I was very just trying to figure out what was going on. I, I was impressed this time how much it's basically structured like a screw screwball comedy. It's like essentially- <laughs> the, the misunderstandings. The sort all of the misunderstandings. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like a serious arsenic and old lace or something where it's like all these guys are just like, someone thinks this person stole the money and so-and-so thinks this happened. And like, it just, it, it, it only occurred to me this watch that, I think at the end, M. Emmett Walsh's character is like the only person who fully knows what happened. Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't think anyone else figured it out. Right. No. But uh, yeah, no, I was just I was just really impressed by, I guess, the structure of it and how how they're able to slowly unveil new information. And I mean, keep the misunderstandings going in a way that's somewhat believable where, I mean, definitely in the screwball comedies, I mean, they're, they're, they're comedies, but I am rolling my eyes at times when I'm like, why aren't you telling the person this? I mean, this, it's, it kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier, Brian, about like a series of events unfolding where each event seems realistic, but then it all ties together into this sort of magical uh -huh. <laughs> timeline of things, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it is that sort of feeling of like you can show anybody one single scene and you're like, and they say like, oh, that's believable. Yeah. Um, but then you show them the whole movie and they're like, that's not all believable <laughs> together. <Yeah. laughs> uh, but again, that's very much by design. It's it's the kind of movies they like making is this sort of, you know, um, Francis McDormand was actually saying that they like working with theater actors because mm. their movies sort of take place in this theatrical world, right? Like they're not trying to get these every move of your face is important it's more like you want these larger than life you want john goodman on fire you know <laughs> like <laughs> oh yeah and all, and all that kind of stuff um but i think the the fascinating thing about this movie what keeps it so engaging um it, you know it's funny the lack of communication between characters is also the lack of communication between the filmmakers and the audience mm -hmm. um in the sense that there's literally no dialogue for about 25 minutes in the middle of this movie, you know, or there's, I think it's 13 minutes is the whole, um, you know, out in the desert scene. But I think there's a good 25 minutes where there's maybe six lines said back and forth between characters, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, but the, one of the reasons 
uh, for lessons from the screenplay, the uh, the YouTube channel that I write for, um, I co-wrote a video on No Country for Old Men, uh-huh. and the the lesson of the video was about two plus two, which is um, Andrew Stanton uh, of uh, Pixar fame, Finding Nemo. Mm-hmm. He um, he gave this TED talk where he talked about. He said the audience doesn't want the audience wants to work for their meal. Mm-hmm. They don't, they want you to say two plus two and let them figure out four. They don't want you to just tell them, right? Um, yeah. so no Country for Old Men, you have these little moments where like he puts one curtain over the other. And then when he comes back in the cab later, you see the curtain is slightly parted and he's like, keep driving, you know? Um, and oh, then I love that. The infamous, uh, the whole movie is trying to keep his boots clean. And then at a certain pivotal point late in the movie, you don't know what happens, but you do see him check his boots to see if they're clean. And you can put that together in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking about that so much watching Blood Simple, which is how much the movie does to sort of say, we're going to show you this information. We're going to let you figure out. And the scene where that happens the most is when um, uh, Ray goes to the bar and finds Marty's body. And everything that's happening is happening in his head. And it's also happening in our head where he's like, oh, he saw the gun. He figured out it was her, da da da, and the, you know. So it's like, totally. what did a character see, and what did that make them do? And you know, but they don't have to ever say that out loud. They don't have to have a voiceover. They don't have to explain to another character why they felt a certain way. They just show us what's going on, and they let us figure it out. And I think that's really cool. Um, and yeah, like there's just there's so much No Country for Old Men in this movie. Like it's which is funny <laughs> yeah. because the country is not even their original script. You know they they uh, they adapted mm. it, but it's like you have this bleak tone, it's Texas, it's opening monologue over landscape shots. All these we're not going to have any dialogue. We're just going to let you figure out what what's going on, and then the standoff through a wall, <laughs> like where the characters can't see each other and they don't know where they are and all that kind of stuff. I'm just like, wow, this whole movie is no catch for old men in a way that I love because I don't mind when they copy themselves if they do it well both times. <laughs> What's impressive to me is I, I, I didn't even realize how little dialogue there was mm-hmm. until I was looking at like the IMDb trivia and I was like, really? There was no dialogue in that scene? And yet I was still so in it that I, I didn't even notice or care. And that's, there's so much tension happening. Like, yeah, everything there's is so happening. much. Yeah, totally. Totally. Uh, I mean, I mean, rarely, really, is there a movie like that where you don't notice there's dialogue? I mean, like 2001 famously doesn't have dialogue for like 30 minutes, but I mean, I'm at least aware of that. There's no dialogue like this, right. this one. I would just, I just didn't even realize it until I read it later. There's an episode of Mr. Robot um, that opens um, with a character saying, I, 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 I don't want to talk about it or something like that, or, or like, uh-huh. fine, we don't have to talk. And then the last line is a different character saying, I think we should talk. And in between those two lines, there is no dialogue, uh, throughout oh, the so cool. 45 minute episode or something. And it's cheating. There's like texting and that kind of thing, but, but mm-hmm. like nobody speaks any line. And every once in a while, you know, a character walks away and another character needs their attention and they like whistle or something. It's like, you, you probably just would have said, Hey, you forgot your keys. You wouldn't have, you know, <laughs> But the cool thing, and this is what you were just reminding me of, Ethan, is I told my friend about it, uh, my friend, or I was talking to my friend about it, who had watched the season. And I said, what did you think? What did you think about the episode with no dialogue? And she said, there was an episode with no dialogue. And I was like, yeah, we're going to do the heist. And she's like, there was no dialogue. In that episode. Said, no. <laughs> yeah, and, totally. and then like her husband walked in the room. She's like, did you know there was no dialogue? He's like, what are you talking about? So <laughs> the fact, as you're saying with Blood Simple, the fact that the movie can do that without 
sort of showing you that that's what it's doing because it doesn't need to, you know, like as long as you to, yeah. are engaged, because because then it starts to get showy, right? If they're like, look, there's no nobody's saying anything, da da da. But when it can just sort of feel in a way that you're not noticing it, um, and you're still as engaged as you would be if there were dialogue, probably more so, right? Because you can't just look off to the side or listen to the dialogue in the background or something like that. You have to be watching everything that happens. Um, yeah. And there are those moments where if you look away for a second, you miss the newspaper flying through the, at the door, or you miss uh, him you know, like looking in the back seat, you know, or whatever, like all these little things where the movie is just sort of constantly compelling you to keep your eyes on the screen in a way that few movies do this well. Totally. Clara. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And I think it's so affecting. And I think part of why I find long sequences without dialogue so exciting is because I feel like there's just an inherent respect for the viewer in situations like that. Like if you look at movies where there's just an abundance of dialogue to over explain, like yeah. I always hate using Christopher Nolan as the example, but Christopher Nolan done is this, the like, example. Two podcasts recently, yeah. <laughs> 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 like he is the example, honestly, a little bit of that. And like, it's fair. He's doing really complicated stuff in his movies. So it makes sense why he's like, we have to explain, but like, or I not explain and just tell the audience. You yeah. just have, you can just feel it. Yeah. Sorry. Exactly. Like, that too. No, that too. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, tenant. Uh, <laughs> but um, I just appreciate when a movie is smart enough to know that its audience is smart as well. Yeah. Like in that we don't need to baby everyone watching this movie. And like, well, that's not going to always be appealing to the vast majority of people. Um, it definitely hits the right people in a way that is exciting and is like particularly interesting because like you said, Brian, like it makes you pay attention more and you're getting an opportunity to appreciate honestly, the filmmaking side of things way more. Like you're noticing the little cutaways to certain things on the ground or like the way people are moving in that sequence because you're not having to pay attention to what they're saying. Like you just get to be fully immersed in the situation and that works so well, especially in Blood Simple when they're not doing dialogue, because that's such a, a tense, heavy mm-hmm. <laughs> sequence of events that are like hor- just flat out horrifying <laughs> to see happen. Um, and I think it would detract so much from the emotion of the scenes if we were having to listen to them, like talk through those moments. Yeah, absolutely. Like mm-hmm. how many movies are you just like, yeah, w- no, I got that. You didn't mm-hmm. have to tell me this. Yeah, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'll give you a Christopher Nolan example of that. Just, oh, just no. <laughs> before we get off that topic, there's a scene in Tenet where um, I think it's like uh, John David Washington is talk, talking to Elizabeth is, is talking to Elizabeth Tarbecki and he's like, everyone on the world, everyone in the world will die. And she goes, including my son. And you're like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we were, we were, yeah. yeah, we know you're a mom and we're tying that into the, yeah, <laughs> we figured <laughs> um oh okay okay we, we i i i really really want to talk about M. emmett walsh's performance here yeah um first of all like the, the time i saw this movie for the first time like right before i saw knives out in theaters and i was like mm. oh my god that's the guy from blood simple and like no one else <laughs> no, n- none of my friends cared i was like hey like that's the guy. <laughs> like I don't, okay, I don't know who you're talking about but I, I'm so impressed by him here in that um, 
he strikes such a weird tone where in some of the scenes he seems so like almost idiotic and mm-hmm. sort of awkward and weird and then he ends up being the main person that's driving the plot forward and by the end you're legitimately afraid of this guy that at the beginning you thought was this like weird big goofball I I, I'm just I'm I'm so I'm so impressed by like the fact that he's able to convey both of those things in the same character because that's almost that's very hard to do I think yeah definitely he's one of those actors who just he plays the perfect sleazeball you know and and like he because um he's in the jerk he's like a crazy person and i didn't realize he was in the jerk yeah and in um uh, blade runner he's bryant uh who sends him you know sends deckard this on is, his mission yeah this is the blade runner connection okay well okay, there's okay. so many blade runner connections so, so first of all you mentioned knives out which has yeah Emmett walsh from blade runner and anna de Armas from blade runner 24 blade runner 24 yeah a little connection there um but also you know blade runner has this uh you know, it feels like he's playing a similar character that, you know, no choice, pal, you gotta, you gotta go do it. Sorry. I know you thought you were retired, but, um, (laughs) and, uh, but the thing that struck me the most is the finale of this movie feels like it's straight out of Blade Runner, which was two years earlier. So maybe it is, maybe they were just like, (laughs) that's good because you've got, uh, sort of a a powerful character chasing the hero, Mm. right? Um, and then you have on one side of a wall and then there's a knife, like a blade that goes through the the bad guy's hand (laughs) and he has to then get out and then he crashes through the wall. You know (laughs) what I mean? There's like just light coming in from the streets. You know, that's like the only lighting in the whole scene. The whole thing feels like the whole chase between Roy and Deckard in Blade Runner, which is, you know, appropriate again, because it's like, well, it was two years later. It was a pretty popular movie. And you've got M.M. at Walsh. So maybe they were just like, they already stole the evil dead shot coming up the lawn, which, you know, uh, they Joel had worked on mm-hmm. evil dead actually. And yep. that's how, that's kind of how he came into the industry a little bit, but I was like, Oh, it's suddenly a horror movie here. So it just feels weird. Like for a movie that feels very consistent during the, that scene where Marty attacks in the house, it suddenly turns into a horror movie. The music gets so crazy and weird like the sound design and then it does the evil dead shot up the lawn where like the camera's down and the, it looks like there's like a critter chasing it like about to like bite him right because that's yeah. like the horror, the horror movie language that we have is like oh it's a low shot like something is, is is chasing um and then you get this almost blade runner type ending you know it just sort of feels like they were like we're making a original movie but we're going to sort of pick and choose from movies that have come out over the past year and sort of insert things that we like into here. And I, th- I think it works. Yeah. Almost like Tarantino-esque and like the borrowing of mm-hmm. other stuff and all that. But um, yeah, no, I, I, I didn't realize he worked on evil dead. What, what I, what I did know about, about the Sam Raimi connection is that uh, Sam Raimi basically encouraged them to shoot a trailer for, a, for the movie that hadn't come mm-hmm. out yet. And so what they did is they like shot a trailer for Blood Simple with Bruce Campbell from Evil Dead as the guy that's crawling through the street and everything. They shot the full trailer with like with none of the actors that they actually had in the movie and then like went door to door in Minneapolis, I think, to like raise $750,000 and actually Mm -hmm. shoot the movie, which is just incredible. Yeah, and I think they went to New York too and a couple places and they would like 
go to a theater where you could rent time and the theater would say, oh, you know, how much time do you need? And they'd say 15 minutes. And they're like, we rent theaters for like weekends. And they're like, we need 15 minutes. And so then they would bring people into the theater for 15 minutes, show them this fake trailer, basically, a real, yeah. real trailer, but mm-hmm. not for a movie that doesn't exist yet. And then just ask them for money. And they're like, <laughs> it's just so, such a different time. You're like, we were, they said we're literally carrying around um the the film you know like the canister basically that's so crazy yeah um clara any any thoughts on uh sam raimi or mm at walsh or any any of any of this blade runner connection well i think for me um i think more than anything like when i watched blood simple i kept thinking back to like i especially in obviously in the end when things are really going wrong I'm like this just feels so much like a slasher from like the 70s yeah. and I love horror so I was like this is this is awesome like <laughs> I'm in it I'm ready to go like this is so exciting and obviously um it deviates a bit like you don't have just like the one killer essentially like you have a couple guys kind of going in on the the work there but like you get your final girl and all these mm-hmm. other different things and like just even the shot compositions feel so horror esque and that's so exciting because, I mean, Coen brothers do it a lot in their work of just kind of like bending the genre a little bit once they really get into the thick of things. Like they kind of draw you in with a feeling of like one type of genre and then they kind of shift it in ways. Um, and I think this is a great example of that where like in the beginning, it feels very neo-noir and like, oh, like what's going to happen? This is so intense, but like so like mysterious at the same time and then by the end you're just like terrified you're like this is yeah. this is so scary like poor Francis McDermott like I feel bad for her <laughs> there was there was one there was one YouTube video I was watching um I don't remember if it was yours or there's a great one on um on every frame of painting about them about how like how their work got more subtle over time that I was mm. really thinking about when this when, when I was watching this especially with the sort of Sam Raimi shots you know where you're it's like it's sort of interesting that I think I think Sam Raimi kept that kept that style yet yet the Cone brothers sort of moved on from it and like if you compare this to the way like no country is shot. No country is very, I mean, you almost don't notice the camera in that, but um, it's, it's interesting that they, that they seem to come out fully formed, at least like in script and general vision, kind of like what you were saying about the sort of underlying structure of it all, but they're, they're the, the techniques employed, at least in shooting almost seem a little more amateur in this. I think that's the only Mm -hmm. thing that I could find in this movie that seems slightly amateur. Yeah. And I think that's sort of what I was saying is that it sort of feels like this weird hybrid of like bad eighties horror movie and like amazing art time, timeless art film almost, you know? Yeah. Um, And I think that's part of it is, you know, one, it's low budget, right? So it's like, they just don't have um, the ability to make things look maybe quite as good as they otherwise would, but Mm -hmm. you could tell how much work was put into so, to so much of the sound design and getting that shot just right. So the fan is, you know, spinning just over their head or uh, again, the tracking shots, the, the, you know, the shot from going to the, uh, Maurice jumping over the bar, going to the thing, putting the song on, walking back, and we're tracking with his shoes and stuff. Uh, even just the opening scene of uh, Abby and Ray in the car, and 
we're only seeing them from behind and then we'll hear like two lines of dialogue and then a headlight comes and then we get a wash of white and then we'll see the next opening credit thing again it sort of feels like a cheesy 80s thing but also yeah. feels really good it's like i'm just like this is so cool <laughs> like the fact that we a- haven't cut away from this shot and just keeps showing us credits the same way i'm just i'm having a good time yeah yeah it's such a cool it's such a cool sort of tone it strikes um the you you bringing up the uh bartender jumping over the bar kind of leads me into the cool trick award which is that's that's kind of what i wanted to dominate there i don't i was i was having trouble with the cool trick award for this for this one um are are there any others that you you guys would like to nominate for that i mean i think the coolest trick is abby's ability to teleport from the bar to her bed just by falling backwards it's pretty (laughs) solid honestly yeah yeah <laughs> speaking of good shots in this movie like that that's is so one. good yeah oh yeah for sure mm. that's a good one clara i think i'll also nominate the fact that when abby is getting dragged out of the house and is like clearly in danger she knows to break a finger i thought that was a cool trick she yeah. had self-defense tricks up the wazoo she was ready and i appreciate that <laughs> right i love that instead of ray coming to her her <laughs> you know her aid he just kind of steps out the door and he's like you got this yeah you okay <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she's got it she broke a finger she's yeah. fine <laughs> Francis and then, and just, can handle herself yeah right and then i just love the the follow-up to that which is we only it's a sound design joke almost where yeah. you hear the car go down the street and yeah. then you hear it <laughs> turn around and then you see him come back. And then he says like, I, went, I wish I could see his face. We saw the dead end. But like the fact that we get what happened before <laughs> the movie tells us again, it's that sort of two plus two thing that does really well. I love sound design jokes. That's so good. Uh, no, that's so good. I, yeah, I, I can't, I can't think of that many, that many others in, in this. I, I mean, you were asking an interesting question, which I don't think I've been posed before, if if it can be a filmmaking cool trick. If we're if we're including filmmaking cool tricks, I definitely think it's the bar scene because I, I love the tracking shot of the shoes. Mm-hmm. I love the tracking shot of the shoes and then hop on the bar, hop off the bar. That's just so, yeah. so brilliant to me. But uh, I, I think it's something, you know, talking about what the Coen brothers do consistently it's like their serious movies are still really funny and their comedy are still like really professional and not afraid to be serious and that kind of thing. And I think that this is a movie where it's like, there's a very consistent sort of bleak, almost scary tone to this movie, but we're also going to like play some four tops and and like (laughs) watch Maurice for a little while. And and, and I think that like, that is something that, that keeps their movies feeling fresh is that they don't Mm -hmm. tend to not get stuck in one, whatever the tone of their movie is and just sort of live there in some bleak way or in some, actually that maybe is why I'm not a huge Hail Caesar fan because it it felt Mm -hmm. like all that movie was doing was being insane and like slapsticky in a way where I feel like Big Lebowski even or something would sort of like take time to relax and before it goes to the next insane thing you know no I totally feel that um yeah, yeah. I almost can't believe we've gotten uh this far in the podcast without talking Francis McDormand sure um Clara speaking, do you want to yeah go ahead go ahead. real quick speaking of cool tricks cool trick Ooh, yeah. on Holly Hunter's part to get turned down for this part and still be in this movie yeah <laughs> right 
yeah, I was but, so- but yeah, it's like she she auditioned and then they um they said, you know, probably not for this part, but oh my God, we want to put you in something like immediately. Um, but then she went home to our, like her friend, her friend's roommate was Frances McDormand or something who had also, and she had also auditioned for the movie. And they said, Fran, you got to go audition for this movie or whatever. And, you know, marry the director while you're at it. Um, and, and, and then <laughs> yeah. she went and just her first performance, she knocks it out of the park. It's cool. Cause I just, in the past two months have watched Nomadland, Blood Simple, and The Man Who Wasn't There. So it's Whoa. like early, mid, and late Francis McDormand just playing three super different characters and just like, it doesn't, factually, it can't be that she's at the top of her game every single time, but it does feel like she's at the top. It feels like every performance is her best performance, you know? And then she'll yeah, show totally. up as like, and like uh, Raising Arizona or something in like mm-hmm. a kooky, you know, kind of like- I love her in Raising know. Arizona so much. Yeah, exactly. It's so wild to me and like, and and this movie, I mean, like the two male leads in it didn't. Well, I mean, M. Emmett Walsh did a lot more, but the but the two other male leads mm-hmm. didn't go on to do that much else, as far as I'm aware. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, you have you have Francis McDormand and Holly Hunter, and then obviously like the Coen Brothers just like skyrocket out out of this movie to like. I mean, three Oscars and I don't know, Holly Hunter might have like two at this point, at least one. Mm-hmm. But I mean, Cohen's have a bunch, but I mean, just just the the talent in this indie movie is absolutely amazing. Yeah. And, and Dan Hedaya, um, who plays Marty, he has also been in a ton of stuff. He's the dad mm. in Clueless. He's in Mulholland oh. Drive. Uh, oh, you're right. Suspects. Oh, my yeah. God. So different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, he is the dad in Clueless. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh my god! He's wow, the guy. Crazy. He's the guy about Holland Drive who pronounces film with two syllables. He says, <laughs> "It's no longer your film." <laughs> oh my gosh! If I didn't, I've you know that's so embarrassing. I've seen both of those movies like within a year. I did not make that connection. <laughs> anyway, um, but but uh, f- yeah, Frances McDormand. I'm I'm just super impressed by her here. Her sort of her sort of maturity. Her mm. I mean. I mean, she's another person that just, I mean, fully formed out of the gate, like just feels like she understands the tone of the movie almost more than anyone else in it. I don't know. Clara, do you have any thoughts on Frances McDormand? Yeah, I think what I adore so much about her character in this film, and I do think this kind of bleeds into a lot of her later work is our introduction to her is a shot from the back of the car. And so we're getting more the back of her head and like the side profile of her to begin with. And it's in the dark and it's really shrouded. And so instead of what I think happens a lot with female actors, which is we get a prioritization of like their beauty and their looks and like the sex appeal of them, we are instead introduced to her through like her character's plight and like her struggles and like what she's going through. And I find that, first of all, just exciting in general, like from a feminist standpoint of just like, this is great. Like we're not immediately getting like a shot of her cleavage or something. Like, sure. thank God. Um, <laughs> but I also think it speaks a little bit to her roles, which is that Frances McDermott plays roles that are so much more about the the plights of her characters and like the situations they're in and the maturity she requires as a character to like navigate those. And that's really cool to see that, like, that's just been kind of a consistent thing for her throughout her entire film career, arguably, is that 
so much of her work is grounded in like character development over like blind like beauty because she is beautiful she looks great in this movie Mm -hmm. but that's just so far from the focus of like what's going on with her totally yeah Yeah, definitely i think that she is there's also just there's this gravitas that she brings Mm -hmm. you know from from such an early age even she's playing a character who's a little a little sort of damsel in distressy at times, mm-hmm. you know, in the way that she's written and, and in the way she plays her a little bit. Yeah. It, it's never with a lack of, but I'm still, I'm still here. Right. I'm, I don't need other people's help. I, mm-hmm. I can, I can look out for myself. And I think that that's um, it clearly something, a character that she wants to be playing even back then. Um, and, and just, a, you know, it's who she plays in real life. Like she tells yeah, the story. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> she tells a story where she um they wanted her to come in to read i think for like callback or something like she had already mm-hmm. met with them and stuff and they said oh can you come in tomorrow and she said she said what time they said two and she said no um because her her boyfriend at the time uh was on a soap opera and it was like <laughs> one of his first things and she's like so i'm gonna watch that you know she's like so I, you know i already oh made plans and he's like and the cones are like okay can you come at four and she's like sure and they're like, okay. And she's like, they said later that that's kind of why she got the part because she didn't need it. Like she, she yeah. had her own life. And she said, that's been a lesson for her as she's gone on additions is, is, you know, like not just don't be desperate and stuff like that, but also like make sure your agenda is as important to you as their agenda is, you know, and mm-hmm. that's important for a female actor and for a female character in a yeah. movie, both of which we're seeing here in Blood Simple. Yeah, totally, totally. And I think, and I think, sort of along with like her sort of idea of her career I think I think Joel obviously is cast her in a bunch of stuff and I think their partnership is so interesting to follow because I mean he seems to have a really a really interesting understanding of what what she wants to do and sort of Mm -hmm. and sort of puts her puts her in I, I mean like like you were saying Clara she looks beautiful in this but but later on very kind of unglamorous roles and stuff mm-hmm. um i i was listening to this interview um that that she did where she was all worried like there might be a sex scene in this and whatever and she was like oh my gosh am i going to be nude and um and joel was kind of like oh no we'll shoot around like we're not trying to sell mm-hmm. this movie based on sex but it it got it got me thinking about how I, I can't think of any nudity in the Coen brothers other than there's one scene in a serious man where like the neighbor's topless. Right. And I think that's like the only nude nude scene I can think of in the Coen brothers. Like, I think, I think her vision and their sort of vision for just kind of like, we're going to sell you this character based on their sort of heart and personality sort of aligns so much. Yeah. And I think it's, a testament to how they treat women in their movies, honestly, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, if you look at blood simple with Francis McDormand or raising Arizona with Holly Hunter, these are yeah. not, as you said, these are not the cleavage shot women <laughs> or the mm-hmm. damsels in distress or whatever. They are like weird and funny and powerful and yeah. sort of aggressive for lack of a better word, you know, and then we get to, um, obviously Frances McDormand again in Fargo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we're sort of like, she's almost the, 
she kind of wears the pants in that marriage a little bit mm, in a, in a totally. way that, that I feel like Norm would have no problem with me saying, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> And, and, and then you get Julianne Moore and Big Lebowski, right? Where it's just like, they're, oh, yeah, they're so great. happy to, to, you know, um, to not try to lean that way, basically, you know, and if you do get someone like the neighbor in Serious Man, well, that's because that's the point of that character. That is the design that or Tara Reid and Big Lebowski, like, they can have those kind of characters, but they're not saying like, this is what a woman is. <laughs> they're saying like, no, no, this character is doing a function for the story. And that's why this character is maybe more you know, a, a playing a little bit more of a two-dimensional role than you normally would get. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And I think, I think that speaks again to like how great of writers the Coen brothers are, because I think it's, it really, a lot of it can be accredited to the fact that they are intentionally writing their female characters as these well-rounded, uh, like women with agency who are not the stereotypical people we see honestly, especially in crime movies, which mm. usually is just like the five second shot of a wife in the kitchen type of thing. And like, yeah, these women are wives or partners or people in romantic relationships. But I feel like the Coen brothers do take a lot of intentional time to create um, character outside of marriage for these women. And I think right. that's really exciting, but that's a like, it shouldn't be a hard thing to do, but I think it is a really hard thing to be done well. Um, yeah, for sure. And like they, I don't think I've seen a single Coen brother movie where I watch it. I'm like, oh, I didn't like the way the women were written. And right. like, there's a lot of movies where I'm like, that. Right. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, for well, sure. You know, you mentioned the final girl and mm -hmm. I'd be interested to go through a bunch of like final girl movies and yeah. see how many of them only become the final girl when they're like male protector is killed every like, time <laughs> right. well but you have like alien that's right true, where, that's where it's true. like sigourney weaver's already a badass and she's already mm -hmm. one of the leaders of this ship. that's a good point and she's that's not even really the protagonist true. until until she's the only one left basically yeah you know? but that is how um abby feels in this movie mm -hmm. because you know again we see her take care of herself early in the movie before mm -hmm. she's the only one left. So when she is the only one left, it's not because her male protector, uh, you know, is gotten, he is, but he's mm -hmm. not her protector. He's just this other guy there. He's like, turn off the lights. And she's like, what if I don't? And then he dies. Um, yeah. Maybe, you know, a lot of bad decisions made by everyone. In this movie. It's like, no, no, seriously, turn true. off the lights. There, no, She's like, okay, but what if I turn them on? Mm -hmm. <sighs> no, that's a great way to put that. And that's so true. And I think it really speaks to her character again, because I think in a lot of, horror movies typically in that moment where like the protector is killed there's so much time spent on the girl like at his side like screaming and going oh my god oh my god like I can't believe you're dead and that's where you see like the killer get to a vicinity where like oh no now the girl's in danger because she's just been cowering over a dead body like you gotta go girl like come on mm -hmm. but with Abby like she springs into action right away like she jumps out of shot I mean she freezes for a second we'll give her that but that's sure uh, <laughs> but she springs into action so quick and like gets out of range and like knows like not to try and hit the light switch with her hand like she's completely like throwing shoes at it like so that's really impressive too and that definitely I think that's a great way to put it Brian where like it abides by the idea of a final girl but it's also counteracting it a lot be because on besides like Ripley and a, a a few others obviously but mm -hmm. like most final girls are final simply because like 
they just lucked out in a way (laughs) and then by the end like them beating the killer is like merely luck honestly a lot of the time like or the cops show up at the last final second and you're like oh thank god but like with abby like she fights her way out till the very end and it's awesome (laughs) Mm -hmm. totally no that's a great point i mean i never i i hadn't really thought about up until our conversation how important it is that that she's the one that beats up her husband in that scene Mm -hmm. um that's yeah that's so foreshadowing of her sort of ability to have have fight people off i guess um mm-hmm. but uh yeah i mean what did you guys think of of just that the way that final scene played out because that's i mean that's that's got to be my my favorite it's it, it's it it's got to be my favorite scene just because of the tension that's built and the sort of there's so many fake outs or so like the scene where you think she's got to be in the shower curtain and she's not in the shower curtain and he pulls mm. it back and you're like, Oh my God. And, um, I mean, again, there's a little comedy put in with, I think there's some comedy in, in the fact that his, his hands knifed and it's way out the window. I mean, it's, it's sort of sickly funny. I, yeah. I just, the, the, the tone very, that's very Coen brothers. Very Coen brothers. Yeah. The tone that's striked in that scene is amazing. Yeah, they um, they had mentioned they were sort of inspired by this Hitchcock movie, Torn Curtain, um, where they were saw saying, that recently. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. I've, yeah, I've never seen it. But they were saying, I guess there's a scene where some they're basically saying, like, in so many movies, someone dies by a single gunshot and they're dead two seconds later. And they were like, but the reality is, like, it's hard to actually kill someone. <laughs> I guess. So they were saying in Torn Curtain, there's like, I guess, a reference to that. Um mm. But uh, they were saying that's sort of the inspiration for the whole Marty scene, you know, in the desert, obviously. But I also feel like that comes into the the finale, which is like the reality of it is not you're running through the house and you're running up the stairs. Probably the reality of it is you are in a room quietly sensing that someone is on the other side of the door trying to figure out where they're moving, you know, that kind of thing. And then once he does get the knife in his hand, he doesn't just yank it out. It takes time. You know what I mean? Like, and we are with him watching him try to get this thing <laughs> out. Fully and then, get the knife. Pull, right. Oh and slowly God. pull it out. Um, and I feel like that's just, that's just fun, sort of delicious tension in and of itself. Um, but also there is a sense of like, this is maybe a little bit more in a, in a movie that doesn't feel like it's trying to be real, this is maybe something that feels real, right? Like this character would take a long time just to get this thing out and they would be slowly crawling to the car or they would, you know, that kind of thing where we are Mm -hmm. really spending time with these moments, building up this tension in a way that you think of when you think of the word thriller, for instance, where it's like, we're not, it's not action. It's suspense. It's thrill. It's like, you know, horror. It's everything is like building up to, here's this moment, here's this moment, now what's going to happen, now what's going to happen, now what's going to happen. And you get you get a lot of um, currency by really bleeding out, literally bleeding out those moments uh, that could would normally be done in a few seconds in the movie, but this movie will take like a good minute to, to do something like that. Yeah, yeah. And the characters never seem to make make dumb choices either where I mean, or at least at least the characters never, never seem to make unmotivated choices, I should mm-hmm. say, like, like even when you know Frances McDormand goes into the bathroom, it makes sense because she's in an apartment and the one exit, the guy's coming in or whatever. Where I mean, I always get frustrated when 
you know, there's like someone's downstairs, there's creepy guys outside the house at the back door. It's like, run out the front door. Don't go upstairs where they're going to go and chase, you know, chase you into a dead end. Like, it makes sense. It makes sense the way she goes into the bathroom. It makes sense the way she kind of ends up in the other room. I just, it, it every, everything that the characters do makes sense within their own sort of internal motivations, which I'm impressed by. Claire? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that speaks accurately. Totally. Uh, (laughs) I think it also is interesting. That point makes me think to like, before I watch this, like a lot of like, the little like synopsis of it were basically saying like, Oh, this is a really violent movie. This is such a violent movie. And I was like, I read that and then I watched it and I was like, that wasn't that violent. Uh (laughs) (laughs) And I, so I was a little thrown off by that, but I think where that comes into play is like with horror, obviously we're seeing like people get gutted and like beheaded and these really horrible things, but it's done so quickly. And then you're on to the next thing so quickly because it's all just about as many scares in line as quickly as possible. Whereas with blood simple, like, we're thrust into scenes that are just inherently scary to begin with like the idea of you standing in an apartment with your lover and then all of a sudden someone shoots him through a window is like that is my worst nightmare like (laughs) what Uh, but from there like it just like you were saying Brian like it draws on realism so much Mm. and that in a way in itself in a way like while it's not like excessively gory is like arguably inherently violent because it's really speaking to like the actual violence of the situation and not like it's going by fast like I do I always think I thought that scene went by really fast but I know it was like a long sequence of events but it's just so like upsetting to see it all play out and in that way it's very violent and so I think that's really interesting in that it's fair to say the film is violent to a certain extent, just not in the way we typically define violence, just in that, like, it doesn't cut away from, like, what's happening. It really makes you sit in the violence of those actions because they are violent in action. Like, it's a man trying to kill a woman, like, that's mm-hmm. inherently violent, um, while it's not, like, as gory as you'd want. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah, and I also think that there there's a, a point where horror stops computing in our brain right so it's like if you're watching if you're watching zombies pull intestines out of someone's stomach your brain just kind of goes okay yeah i'm I'm basically watching a cartoon now this exactly but when you're watching someone slowly pull a knife out of their hand like that is on paper that sounds like such a low stakes thing compared Mm -hmm. to someone having their intestines pulled out and like eaten by whatever but it's a real it's a thing that your brain connects to you're like oh my god i don't want you know like yeah cover your ears kids but like just watching a character like have their fingernails pulled out in a torture movie or something you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. uh, i think it's a Clooney and syriana that happens to where you're just like you're just like ah like that is so again on paper that sounds like a minor minor thing but Mm -hmm. your brain can handle that that feeling in a way Mm -hmm. that it can't handle the feeling of like having someone's head exploding or something like that you're just kind of like oh okay my brain doesn't care about that now but no now i'm watching this like very real thing happen someone has to like pop their finger back into place you know what i mean Uh, so yeah (laughs) they they, they utilize that really well Mm -hmm. no i think it's a great point i definitely feel that in the buried alive scene where Mm. where i mean i i sort of empathize with both characters of that scene where i'm like this guy thinks his 
girlfriend tried to kill this guy and he's still alive and he's like i have to save her mm-hmm. and so i i mean i understand where he's coming from and then the guy that's just like crawling and like trying to get away but just like cannot do anything and and um definitely just like the fear of being buried alive um yeah. <laughs> i mean it doesn't you know i mean oddly there aren't that many movies that trigger it maybe i just don't want watch enough horror movies because it's not i mean it's not inherently gory which Mm-mm. i mean kind of goes back to what you were saying which, where, where i think i think it's like there's not as much violence as there is in let's say like a non-violent tarantino movie i mean mm-hmm. or like or just like a less violent movie but but just the violence is depicted so real and it's yeah it's just it's 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 super intense for sure yeah i mean i think it's like people want to tie a word like gore or shock to horror and it's like that can be what some horror yeah. is but there it's there's so many subgenres of horror and i think a lot of it is more just like we want you to feel unease you know yeah. and and like you again the the more over the top you are sometimes then the more it becomes like well now it's just a silly thing but i don't mm-hmm. feel uneasy anymore whereas you can find these ways to um you know the exorcist is my favorite horror movie yes because horror. it spends the first half of the movie not showing you anything and yeah. just sort of making you feel so uneasy and so <laughs> worried and so scared and to me that's so much more exciting than a movie where it's like look at all these you know look at all this blood or look at all these explosions or whatever you know yeah exactly and i i mean it's it reminds me a lot of like the the phenomena you see with like creature features where the lead up to the reveal of the monster is way scarier than when they actually show you finally what the monster is right right because the second the monster's on screen you're able to look at it and rationalize it you can go oh that's a puppet oh that's cgi like oh look at that looks so bad like there's so many ways to see that and then your brain can just go that's not real but like you're saying brian like draw drawing on unease instead of outright terror is something that's a lot harder to rationalize away because a lot of the time you don't even inherently know why you're uneasy like you Mm. just feel it and then you can't rationalize it away and then you're just left with this terrible feeling that's just horrible to deal with yeah yeah Yeah, that's a great point um and for some reason we like that yeah (laughs) for some reason (laughs) for some reason we keep coming back um this is just a fun a fun fact because i i happen to like watch like the criterion intro to the movie Mm. um they wanted the the dumpster like the flaming dumpster in the back to seem bigger and oh. so instead of building a bigger dumpster, they hired really, really short actors to be like <laughs> tossing the trash in the dumpster. So it's actually like a not not that big of a dumpster. That's so interesting. That's like how <laughs> in Jaws, for some of the scenes where they have like, they're like filming the shark underwater and whatnot. And like there's the scuba diver in the cage. They just like had someone who was smaller mm. so that it would yeah. look more realistic. It's just like, I love it's so funny how people do that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So what, what you're saying is Willy Wonka's Charlotte Chocolate Factory might be like really tiny. Yeah. It, super it just it just seems big. Super small. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> They're just messing with our perception. Yeah. Oh man. Um, any any other any other thoughts on the movie? Wrap up, wrap up thoughts, just kind of final thoughts here. 
I, I guess my final thought is, I don't know this off the top of my head. I'm sure if I Googled it, I would know. But I would love to know if the lighthouse, like Robert Eggert's with the lighthouse drew any inspiration from Blood Simple. They bury William Defoe alive in that. Mm. So sorry. Wait, no, we've done that on the podcast, right? No spoil. I'm not even apologizing <laughs> for that spoiler. Uh, <laughs> 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 I mean, I don't know if podcast. people are all going in order, but okay. No, listen to it. In as order. long as you've uh, listened to every episode in order. Yeah. But I would be really curious to know if there was any inspiration drawn from that, because obviously Robert Eckers draws a lot of inspiration from like historical text. So it's Mm. hard to like see for sure where any other inspiration was drawn. But that's all I could think about the whole time. I was like, this is like the lighthouse. But really, it's lighthouse is like blood simple. Yeah, right. Well, I think being buried alive is a historical thing, you know, because it's like before we necessarily had the technology to completely confirmed that someone was dead you know and then <laughs> there's the the whole story about i think most of it's like urban legend or yeah it's not urban legend that it happened it's urban legend that it ever had to happen which is that every bells. would have a bell oh. yeah so you oh could... i was just gonna bring up the bells yeah, yeah, exactly. the bells. <laughs> the bell story freaks me out <laughs> are the stories about like when they dug someone up again and the, it's all clawed out yeah. on the inside oh, oh god uh oh uh, yeah Thank you. Yeah, so, yeah the bells not, are great not though. just blood simple yeah <laughs> real life real life oh man um any any final thoughts in the movie brian you feel like you covered it uh, i mean again i just i really think um it, it's a it's just what we talked about of trusting your audience you mm-hmm. know it, it's like we see the same thing with pixar right now where mm. it's they are not making a movie for six-year-olds just like look at all these colors and stuff they're making where adults can be engaged with it and kids Mm -hmm. can be engaged with what they're seeing and also realize that there's a little bit more going on you know we all watch movies when we were 10 or 11 where we're like i like this i don't quite get everything like i don't get Mm -hmm. what is going on here with these characters i don't get what that the line of dialogue meant but I get enough of it and I'm, I'm happy to sort of like keep thinking about this and da da da. Like we will do that at a young age. Um, so kids go watch blood simple. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Yeah. No, but, but point is, I think for any audience, just, mm-hmm. you know, w- if you are explaining, do you need to be explaining as much as you are explaining to your audience? Right. You don't need to see characters walk into a restaurant and sit down and say hi to each other. You can just show us two characters at a restaurant. We get that they showed up and said hi to each other. Like, <laughs> yeah. things like that. There's so many things you can do. And this is just sort of a, I don't want to say masterclass because like, mm. you know, but, but this is a, a really good example of a movie where so much work is done in the audience's mind in a way that is just it's they give us the perfect amount of information if they gave us less because some movies give you too little mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. so and some right. Brothers movies can do that where you're just like i don't i'm lost i don't care anymore i don't want right. to figure this out you know yeah, yeah. And, and most movies give you too much where halfway through the movie you're like okay i know what the rest of the movie is i'm just gonna watch it happen now right. um and this is sort of this just like perfect perfect balance of you are on your toes being surprised by what's happening but you're also figuring out a lot of what's happening in your own mind before the characters do and and it is that fun dramatic irony thing where it's like because the audience knows more than the characters do basically for the entire movie you get to feel you get to rub your hands together and feel like you're smarter than the average bear because you're like right? these characters don't know what's going on but i do so. yep. <laughs> 
yeah, you definitely get this in this movie. Um, I guess, I guess my final thought is, um, oh yeah, yeah. I, I, there was one thing I forgot to bring up. There, oh. There's a, there's a, um, there's a Guillermo del Toro quote. Cause he was like interviewing the Coen brothers for some thing I found on, there's like a 30 minute interview where like Guillermo del Toro interviews the Coen brothers on YouTube, which I just highly mm. recommend because oh, they cool. don't do enough interviews. No. <laughs> um, but Guillermo del Toro said early on this thing that I just keep thinking about, which is like, he said that like every story they do feels like it would take place on like page six of a local newspaper. Ooh. And I definitely feel that here where it's just like, it's, it's, it's just like something that happened to people that's somewhat noteworthy, but not like the biggest thing to ever happen to it's it's not like the biggest thing to ever happen in this town they don't need to like create these crazy stakes to make you care about the situation and the characters and i i I definitely thought about that with this watch of just like the sort of um yeah the sort of way this all played out where there was you know a couple random murders and self-defense and you know people probably move on but it's i mean it 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 feels like the most important thing where you're when you're watching it, and so I, I always think that's uh, super impressive. I love that. I'll yeah. counter and say that this is the type of story that would end up on a true crime podcast right away. That's yeah. that's <laughs> also true. Someone hires a hitman. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. like that's that's definitely true that's crime. That's good content. That's People the... would listen. I would listen to that. <laughs> Except here's the problem, okay. or maybe just here's the difference between mediums, which is the true crime podcast. The true crime podcast words are hard. <laughs> yes. um, the first episode would be like Abby's parents met. Uh, in, oh no! In, <laughs> and then you have to wait till like episode seven before any of these characters before anything gets good. Oh yeah. no! <laughs> that's that's such oh, a that's good point. So funny. Uh, Brian, it's it's been it's been super fun having you back. Thank you so yeah, much yeah, for thanks, coming back and chatting with us and everything. Um, I'm still doing the quote thing, so I don't know if you have any uh, thoughts on what what final quote you wanted to do for this. Uh, any any quote from any movie can be this movie in in character. I mean, I think because we're because it's Coen Brothers, we yeah. gotta go with "Do not seek the treasure." <laughs> We thought you was a toad. Do not seek the treasure. We thought you was a toad. Oh my God. Ah. I, was I was trying so hard to laugh quietly, so I didn't ruin that. Oh, that was amazing. Oh, that was so fantastic. <laughs> oh, man. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of Cineflag and I will see you next week.